this passage, and I love it. Thanks so much, God. Um, so it's page uh, 1153 in your green Bibles, and it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, which we'll read together. Cool. Everybody got it? Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that your word is living and true, and that it is eternal, and it is as relevant for us right now as it was almost 2,000 years ago in 60 AD as people were reading this for the first time. So Lord, would you breathe new life? And would you restore us for your kingdom glory? Amen. Amen. Um, guys, I actually really love this passage um, because it tells us, once you kind of really dig into it, about God's heart for humanity, for relationships, for evangelism, and it points us to, um, to the new creation, to everything that one Peter is staring at, that kind of tree-free reality that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, where one day all these wrestles that we can kind of feel in this text will be caught up in the company of heaven and everything will be just as it is meant to be. It's going to be glorious. Um, but before we get into it, I thought it might be helpful to take a little sidebar into a brief sort of run through this whole like women in leadership, women in the home place topic that we um, sometimes find in scripture. And we're only going to understand this scripture, 1 Peter, if we get into the context. And it's always, always important when engaging with scripture to contextualise. But never more so when we find something like this and we think, oh, on the first reading, this kind of jars maybe a little bit with um, other things that we know of scripture. We need to dig deep into it and say, okay, what's going on here? What's going on? So um, in terms of the sort of women in leadership, women in the home place stuff, there are four verses in scripture that one may uh, describe as the tricky passages. Um, here we go, the tricky passages. Um, and they are um, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. Those talk to, uh, to women in leadership specifically. Um, and Tim has done an amazing, amazing job all of that. So we've got lots of April cells, which I haven't got time to go into this evening, but there's a sheet of that if you want to, uh, to grab hold of those. And um, they're both written by Paul. Um, 
who has had, as Amy said, quite a bad press in terms of women and leadership stuff, and that's absolute nonsense. Paul is just wonderful, and scripture is wonderful, and scripture is so pro-women and men. Um, and then we've got Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, which is what we're going to look at this evening, and they speak more to the kind of home place narrative, the marriage uh, narrative. And the primary thing that we have to get hold of with these, um, these verses is that they're all written in letters. So they're written to really specific circumstances at a really, really specific time. A bit like if I was going to write like an email to my mates in Madagascar. I'm going to say something very, very specific to them and um, their context. So rather than something like the Gospels, which are um, sort of historical accounts of the life of Jesus, or the Book of Acts, which is a historical account of the early church, or even Romans, to be fair, which is um, a theological trustee as well as a letter by Paul. These are very, very specific. And as we step into Scripture, Scripture screams out, the distinction of man and woman, gender, is really, really important. It's really, really God-given. And actually, we need to stand firm and wrestle for it in current culture. It's really good to be a woman. It's really good to be a man. But Scripture also screams out our equality before God. And that's part of how we are and were made. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I'm going to make humankind in my image, man and woman in my image. Because we're made in the image of a God who is free and wants it. In God, there's unity, there's the oneness, that's our humanity, that's our equality. Also distinction, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's our gender stuff as we're image bearers, as we bear God's image. And it's only in Genesis chapter 3 that we see division. And the first division that happens is between us and God. But the second division that comes in is between men and women. And the third division is between us and creation, the created order, the world that we were called and made to steward well, to work well with. And then all the scripture is heading towards the new creation, is heading towards that moment when it will be put right again in Genesis 1 and 2 realities will be back in play, in their fullness. And so if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament is thousands and thousands of years old, a massively kind of patriarchal, manly culture. Um, and still, loads and loads of male leaders, which is brilliant and good, and we need those in the church and in the world, but also some extraordinary female leaders. Um, you've got Ruth and Esther, who we talk about in the world, but you've also got people like Miriam, and Miriam was Moses' cousin, she was uh, Israel's worship leader. You've got Deborah, Deborah is awesome, um, she was one of the uh, rulers of Israel in the book of Judges. Um, She's up there, right at the top, more senior position than her husband, anybody in Israel, because she was in charge. Um, that's the Old Testament. Extraordinary women in leadership. Um, and then we see what Jesus does with women. And again, in this really, really patriarchal culture, Jesus teaches and um, walks with women and treats them with such, such dignity. There's an extraordinary bit in um, the book of John. In John 19, when Jesus on the cross gives out his spirit, actually what is going on there is that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. It's the first Pentecost almost. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit as he dies on the cross. And who does he give it to? He gives it to the women standing around, to Mary and Mary. Um, 
And then we get to the women, first to the tomb, first to witness the resurrection, first to meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ, first to tell the other disciples about what is going on. But somehow in some of church history, rather than getting hold of that picture of unity, of men and women working well together, we've ended up in a bit of kind of division. That looks a little bit like this. I hope you found funny because I find it really funny. That. And we've kind of ended up here, haven't we? Sometimes, not all the time. But actually, God's heart is so different. It's so different. Actually, God's heart is what we find in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 16, you can just flip to the next slide. Brilliant. Okay, so this is Romans chapter 16. So this is the end of Paul's big theological work. Of like, this is what the Christian faith is about. And he's writing to the church. And he is remembering that. And who does he know? Well, everybody in red is a woman. And everybody in green is a man. And there are men and female leaders there. So Phoebe is a deacon. That's like very, very leadership. Um, and then you've got Julia. She's an apostle. The apostles were really badass leaders. And then you've got Jonathan's with her. And you've got Priscilla and Aquila leading. And they're a married couple. And it's this amazing, amazing vision of men and women leading well together, single and married people, slaves and free. And that is what the church is meant to look like. That's what we're meant to look like. So, before I get too passionate, um, then we turn to something like this, where we know that the whole trajectory of scripture is one of redemption and is one of equality. And we need to step into it and say, okay, what's occurring? What's occurring? So, 1 Peter. Um, argument is that 1 Peter um, is part of the big, big narrative of Scripture, which is a, a narrative of three trees. So you've got the first tree, Genesis 1 and 2, the tree of creation. Then you've got the second tree, which is the tree of the cross, where Jesus Christ flung wide his arms and welcomed all of us in. And then you've got the tree of the new creation, um, that the Scripture so we're between these two trees and one Peter is between these two trees the tree of the cross and the tree of the new creation and so we're so aware of new creation realities. we're so aware of who we are meant to be in God and that we are meant to be a prophetic people bringing the kingdom of God into the present but equally we are a practical people who just live in the here and now Peter is a practical person his book is so practical and it's about this is what it means to live in this in-between time this time between the cross and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return as it talks about in the book of Revelation this is how to realistically live this Christian thing and for Peter there were two things going on Firstly, he's writing to the first century kind of Greco-Roman world. So most people are Roman citizens, some people are Jews, and some people don't have citizenship. And sociologically, the household, so dad was the head of the household, and then um, wife below him, and then children and slaves. That is the primary unit. And good order in the household is like a microcosm for good order in the state in the government, in the world at large. And so the Romans are obsessed with good order in the households. They've got these really, really, really strict household codes. And one of them is that actually the religion of the husband should be the religion of the household. But suddenly people are coming to faith. 
and women, wives are coming to faith. And suddenly you've got this radical thing going on where the wife's got a different faith to her husband. And Peter's writing into that context. And he's right inside that context. He's not abolishing the systems of the day because he doesn't want Christianity to fall into too much disrepute. You know, Christianity is already viewed with massive suspicion. If you read um, the letter of Jude, it talks about communion. And there's basically this rumor going around in the first century that when Christians were communing together, it's actually like eating of people's flesh and cannibalism was going on. And, you know, Christianity has not got a good press. So Peter steps into this situation. He says, okay, don't blow everything up too much. Don't make a rod for your own back. Bend into the structures of the day while still being true to Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. That's the first thing. The second thing, we're going to read these passages in our modern context and go, why doesn't Peter talk about singleness? Why doesn't scripture talk about singleness that much? Doesn't 2 Corinthians 7. Seven for another time. And that's because marriage is compulsory under Roman law, not under Jewish law. So Jesus wasn't married, and that was fine, although most people were married. But Roman law, you had to get married because they were so obsessed with good order in the household. Must have made for some terrible marriages, I think, if you're literally married because you have to, under law, be married. But that's what Peter's speaking into. That's what he's battling against. That's the context of this passage. And so, Tom Wright just says this. Actually, this passage is slicing through the stereotypes of the ancient world, these stereotypes of patriarchy and hierarchy, and it is redeeming all people. The whole of 1 Peter also redeems uh, those who were slaves. It's setting out the fact that we're that Genesis 1 and 2 reality, that we're image bearers, that we're made in the image of the living God, and there is complete dignity for all humankind before Jesus Christ and in this world. That's what it's getting at. So verses 1 to 6. Some of it would have felt normal, but some of it would have been totally redeeming and totally radical. Because Peter is saying it's about what's on the inside, not the outside. And Peter is saying to these women who have come to faith, stick with your faith. Stick with it, even though it's massively costly. And then verses 7 and 8 are so radical. So radical, because a husband is called to do something that's unheard of. So let's look at the passage in more detail. Pull out your Bibles. All right. Verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Verse 1, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. This passage is about evangelism. It's about this is the best way for you as a wife to call your husband into faith, Don't make a rod for your own back. Bend into the systems of the day and help your husband come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the submission is about here. That's what the heart of this passage is because submission was so normal in that context. And then it goes on. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes or yellow jackets. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. So what's going on here? Should we all be walking around in burkas? No, is it something quite different? Um, in the first century, not only were women second-class citizens, but Aristotle, who was regarded you know, as the greatest teacher of the day, had taught that women were basically a second form of being, that they were so lower than men that they were almost only kind of half-human. 
That was what was pervading around. And so the way that women got power and promoted themselves was through beauty and sex and fashion and dress and all of that. They manipulated and grabbed power because that was their only way through. And Peter is saying, you do not need to do that. You don't need to do that. Your beauty, your dignity, your majesty comes from what is inside, not what's outside. And it's a freeing thing. It's so freeing. Okay. Verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay. So Peter, Peter was a Jew. Peter knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. So he gets hold of an Old Testament story to illustrate his point, Abraham and Sarah. But the key bit in this is that end few words, do not give way to fear. Do not give way to fear. And what Peter is challenging there is saying, don't give way to fear, wife. Don't give way to fear, daughter of Christ. And capitulate back into your old religion. Don't give way to the fear of your husband not believing in Jesus. You stand firm for the gospel. That's the point there. And then he just gets more more radical. Here we go. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, or sometimes that's translated as honour, or actually preciousness. It's the same word that Peter uses for Jesus as the cornerstone back in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. It's a big word, full of dignity, as the weaker partner. And there... The weaker isn't that, you know, you're emotionally or spiritually or kind of theologically weaker. It's just a very real reality that most of the time women are smaller than the men. I mean, I'm tiny. I'm not going to take Max out of battle. I'm going to have him. You know, and actually, in the first century, because women were perceived to be so much lower than men, girls were just given less food. Women, women were tiny in the first century. They weren't fed as much. They were physically weaker. So, as a weaker partner... And as heirs, here all the equality comes, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This mutual vision of marriage and of salvation, that everyone who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ is an heir, an heir of this gracious gift of salvation. That actually marriage is about doing this thing together, it's about praying together, it's about honouring and respecting and in the right moments, submitting to one another so you can run this race well. And then it ends. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. This passage is so, so countercultural when you get it into context. It's about unity. It's about equality. It's about the beautiful distinction between men and women, but also the reality that we are all God's heirs, that we're all in. It's totally revolutionary. So what's the application for us? And don't worry, I'm coming into land. Um, There's three things going on for Peter. First of all, Peter is challenging us that it's about what is on the inside, not what is on the outside. And culture, often throughout the centuries, has slipped into this kind of arrogance of 
personal adornment and personal kind of projection and you know the beauty and of us as humanity looking at the outside all the time and not the inside the church is to be different we look at the inside and so you know some, some questions for us actually how, how do we look at people how do we choose our friends who do we date them? why do we date them yeah, Max was talking about Glassdoor, and I love just hanging out with those guys on a Tuesday evening because, yes, they're a tiny bit different to me, but actually they're not really different. They're image bearers. They're full of dignity. They are made in the image of the living God, and they are my brothers and sisters. Okay, so what's on the inside, not on the outside? It's about evangelism. Actually, what is screaming from this passage is that our relationships exist for the world out there and they exist for other people and they exist for the Lord Jesus Christ and again that is so counterculture because our culture says to us protect yourself protect yourself be an individual or be this like unit of two or if you've got some kids be this unit four six eight if you're Irish I'm Irish I am Irish sorry right evangelism Okay, you know, our relationships, they exist for other people. And they exist to tell other people about Jesus Christ, and they're so important. And then it tells us about God's heart for relationships, and relationships in all their forms. Marriage, singleness, siblings, parents, friendship, all of this. And it tells us that actually, we're our most dignified, we're our most complete in the image of the opposite sex, man and woman. Um, so Sean Doherty, he's, uh, he's an ethics professor, um, and he just puts it like this, it's brilliant. It's a genuine difference between women and men which reflects a real difference, a person in God. So that Father, Son and Holy Spirit thing, because we image God. Yet, just as importantly, men and women are fundamentally the same, reflecting God's own unity, the oneness. It's only together that we reflect God, and neither gender can reflect God on it's um, called to do this thing together. This is also why men and women are equal, just as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. So, at a really, really practical level, then, singleness, or as Tim um, likes to call it, unmarriedness, which will um, speak to a lot of us, myself included. And um, what's going on there for us? Singleness is so, so good. Because one, it reflects the life of Jesus Christ. And two, it reflects the new creation reality. Actually, guys, that tree free, that tree free thing is singleness and friendship. There's not going to be any marriage in just like bizarre thought, isn't it? But, but there we are. Um, Vaughan Roberts, he's a brilliant guy. Um, he's um, a vicar in Oxford. And he just puts it like this. After Christ's return, there will be no marriage. That's Matthew 22, 30. But great intimacy will be enjoyed in the beyond sexuality delight of friendship with one another as God's people in the new creation. Tree free. Actually, singleness points to the future reality. Where there's not going to be any marriage. Marriage is also a really, really good thing, and we're going to get onto that because it's wonderful and ordained by God. Um, but in our culture, people are staying single for longer, aren't they? And actually, we as church need to not have a Bridget Jones style freak out at every possible moment, but rather, you know, just say, this is cool. This is where God's put me right now. I'm walking happily and firmly in this. 
It's always been single people in the church. Not just Jesus, but, you know, we think of some of the great heroes of the faith of the 20th century. John Stott, never married. Um, Jackie Pollinger, amazing, amazing woman. Um, to be fair, um, Jackie was married for a couple of years, and sadly her husband passed into glory. But she did most of what she did as a single person, still doing it as a single person. Throw yourself into life. Singleness is not a waiting room. Okay? You know, and because the goal of Christianity is Jesus, not marriage. It just is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just encourage us, if that's where you are right now, like just relax into it. And if you're struggling, we're going to have some time for prayer and stuff later. Just ask God to, to let you be content in it. And allow yourself to be content in it. You, know, you don't need to fight against it. And perhaps, you know, ask yourself the questions, rather than kind of running around constantly, by the way, I'm speaking to myself here too, um, running around being like, I want to be the one! You know, just, what's good about it right now? It gives time, possibly more time for friends. It gives a real freedom to travel. It gives a freedom to really give and yourselves, myself, um, to, to life um, in the church with, um, with my mates who are going through stuff. Um, read 2 Corinthians 7. Really helpful. Take it seriously. Take the life of Jesus seriously. Equally, don't let yourself be isolated. You know, a lot of my single mates, um, I think because they're finding it a bit painful now, they're like, I'm not going near that baby shower. I don't want to go to that kid's birthday party and stuff. I would say to us as church, do not be like that. Engage massively with all of your friends, with their kids, with your married friends. Get involved. But equally, married people, ask yourself, you know, if I've got a single friend or two that I'm inviting into this thing that is my life, Am I taking other people with me who maybe are not of the same marital status to me? It's that classic thing, isn't it? It takes a village to raise a family. So, love singleness. Know what it's for. It's this brilliant thing. Equally marriage. Where singleness and reflects the life of Christ and the new creation, marriage reflects the unity and the distinction in God. As a man and woman get married, they reflect that Trinitarian reality of unity and distinction in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they reflect Christ and his church. That's what Ephesians 5 is getting at. And this passage, verse 7 and 8, culminates in that glorious vision of marriage. It's a place where people are gracious heirs of Christ together, and they pray together, and they run this race well together. And so perhaps, you know, just asking yourselves a few questions, like, how's your prayer life together going? Um, how's your vision for the year? Um, some of my friends who are married, they try and sit down um, every January and just write out their vision for the year. Um, I think, yeah, it's really, really helpful to them. Equally, who are you inviting into your life? Who's running with you? Are you feeling kind of a bit isolated, like it's just the two of you or the two of you and your kids or whatever? Um, Vaughan goes on to say, Healthy Christian marriages do not have an exclusively inward focus, but are fueled by looking up to Christ and strengthened by looking out to others, both to give and to receive. We all need other people. And so we're going to land in friendship. And friendship has been massively, massively devalued in our culture. Because our culture makes the pinnacle of being this like romantic life relationship that's meant to satisfy everything. It just doesn't work like that. It's not scriptural, it's not real. And we as church need to take friendship more seriously. 
because we all need friends. Actually, if you are a married couple, you need friends. You need other people around you. That I, mean, I can see it in the life of my parents. That one other person cannot satisfy your every relational need. I mean, only God can really do that. But in terms of sort of on this earth, practically right now, you're going to need other people to, to run with you. Equally, if you're single, you need friends. You need that intimacy thing with other people. You know, no one ever died from not having sex. But people die from loneliness. So actually, intimacy, true intimacy, is about true friendship. And you can be single and celibate and totally, totally fulfilled. And scripture, scripture adores friendship. And you've got Ruth and Naomi, you've got Moses and Aaron, you've got Jesus and his 12, Jesus and his 3, Jesus and his one other person, the beloved disciple. You've got Romans 16, you know, that was a lot of friends. Um, you've got Job, he's got some fairly useless friends, but still, you have friends. It's so, you know, Scripture loves, loves friendship, and we need it. We need it. And um, Paul Roberts, who himself is a single man, and I think probably will be, um, well, he's about 60, I think. Um, and he's written this amazing, amazing book called True Friendship. And I like it so much that it has lots of big bits coming up. Um, and it's, it's short, and it's so deep, and it's so true. If you've got time, um, grab it. It's like four quid or something. Um, so, um, yeah, we need, we need friendship. So another question for us this evening actually is, do you have close friends, like really close friends that you're running this race with, along with the wider circle? And you know, 556 friends on Facebook does not count. Because um, actually we need friends, not companions. Friends, not companions, that's a very different thing. I had a story, but I'm going to stop because we'll be here to win that. Um, Great. So 1 Peter, chapter 3. Our relationships, what is getting at the heart of it is about relationships and our relationships in all their forms, friendship, marriage, parenthood, all of it, they exist to draw us and other people to Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect him well in this world and to bring this new creation reality into the present where everything will be set right. Um, what we're going to do now is we've got, we've got a good chunk of time, especially as we're migrating into worship um, later on. So we're just going to wait on the Lord and um, let some of this um, to settle. And then we'd love to, to pray for people. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll do that just the left-hand side, but more towards the back, just in front of the sofas. There's a good spot of space down there at the left-hand side. Or you're really free to pray for each other in your seats, whatever is, um, is most comfortable for you. Um, but can I invite you to stand? And we're just going to wait on the Lord. And ask his spirit, which is here, which is always present amongst us, to, um, to dwell deeply and richly. And so far, we thank you that your heart is for us. And your heart is for us to have a heart for each other. That your heart is for marriages, for them to be strong and true. Your heart is for singleness, 
us to learn grace well. Your heart is for friendship that each and every one of us will feel known. We stand against isolationism. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that angel prayer of the church. 